Now, Illustrate has been our series studying these parables told by Jesus, these parables that are often called the kingdom parables, to kind of catch glimpses of the kingdom of God. Each of these kingdom parables is really just an incomplete or imperfect or unfinished illustration. But the more we read, the more we read them, the more we hold them in tension with each other, we find ourselves getting a larger view, a bigger understanding, a deeper experience of the kingdom of God. As we've been studying, we've been saying that Illustrate is our Sunday morning series exploring the parables that Jesus used to illustrate for us the realities of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God so we can embody what life in the kingdom should look like. And each week I've kind of reminded you that throughout this series, when I speak about the kingdom of God, what I'm saying is I'm talking about the rule and the reign of God as it manifests in our everyday life. The kingdom of God, a way of defining it, the way of understanding it, is that it's the rule and the reign of God manifesting itself in our everyday life. Now, over a decade ago, there was this family in New York, and they decided, uh, maybe it was a Saturday, to go yard sailing. Many of us have done this. It's a practice that many of us are familiar with. And at a yard sale not far from their home, they came across this bowl that was on a table. Now, the family was intrigued by the uniqueness, the simplicity of this bowl. They picked it up and noticed it had a small chip and uh, didn't really bother them. It was only $3, and so they thought this thing would be perfect to display in their living room. So they picked up this small bowl. They paid $3 for it, and for the next decade or so, it sat on a shelf in their living room. Now, over the years, they would look at this bowl, and they'd kind of speculate or become curious about, what is the history of that bowl that we paid $3 for? Do any of you, like me, just love picking up random things at yard sales and then wondering later what they're all about? Right? I did that probably yesterday more than I should have. So, so, like, you know, here's this bowl. They have it on a shelf. They're sitting there. They're watching TV, whatever. And all of a sudden, they start to speculate, what is this bowl? You know, we paid $3 for it. It looks old. What is it? And so they decide, you know, to take this bowl, which is only about five inches across, and take it to an antique dealer to kind of have them assess it. Well, suddenly they learned that this bowl that they were paying just $3 for was actually a thousand-year-old Chinese bowl. They were told that a pre-sale estimate of it would probably bring in two hundred dollars to $300,000 for them. Now, most of us would not be too uh, upset if we learned that something we paid $3 for suddenly could be worth $300,000. But actually, this story gets better than just having a $300,000. In fact, they go on to find that the only other bowl of this size, shape, and form, and likeness uh, has been in the collection of the British Museum for 60 years. So this is really the only other bowl like this known. And, you know, so as they probably do, they decide to take, any of us would probably do, we take this $3 bowl, we take it to auction, hoping to get 300000 Well, because of the uniqueness of this bowl, there was four high bidders that began to ferociously fight over this thing. And by the time the auction came to a close, it brought $2.5 million to this family. Now, can you imagine a yard sale item that you paid $3 for, all of, sorry, $2.2 million, all of a sudden is worth 
million. And more importantly, they had it in their possession for 10 years or so before they even realized its value. It just sat on the shelf. Luckily, their kids or the dog didn't knock this thing off and break it into a million pieces, right? They've had this thing for years before they realized its value. Now, I know a bunch of you are probably already wondering, what do I have around the house? That might be my secret uh, gift of wealth. And others are wondering, uh, how soon you can get to a yard sale and begin to start looking. And no, when I was at the yard sale yesterday, even though I picked up a whole bunch of stuff, I did not pick up anything of value uh, like this. However, the story of this bowl, this bowl that has been called the chip bowl, is actually very uh, similar or familiar to the one that Jesus is going to share this morning and tell his audience in hoping to explain the value of the kingdom of God. This morning we join back with Jesus as he's uh, kind of telling these parables to stretch our way of seeing the kingdom of God on this iconic inlet of the lake. As I mentioned Weeks later, Jesus has been staying with some disciples in the house. The crowds have kind of stuck with him ever since his whole Sermon on the Mount thing. And so they began to really press him for more teachings and more ministry time. And, and so Jesus leads them to this amphitheater uh, that has been naturally kind of shaped in the water here. And he goes out on a boat and he begins to address the crowd, teaching them these parables. He wants them to see through this parable that we're going to look at today, about the gift of joy. And, and so this morning, as we look at Matthew 13, 44 through 46, Jesus is actually going to tell them two parables that kind of go in unison to each other. They often are called the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. These are two parables in which Jesus really uses and longs for his audience to know two things. First, the ultimate type of surrender that the kingdom of God needs. And two, that there's nothing as valuable or as lovely or beautiful in the world as much as the kingdom of God. And so to do this, Jesus begins to tell them an example of finding wealth in a, a kind of way or understanding that they knew well. And in teaching these two things, we learn some additional things. The type of effort needed to pursue the kingdom. The surprise that is often affiliated with the breaking in of the reign and the rule of God. As well as the gift of joy that will transform our lives when we surrender ourselves to the kingdom. And so as we read this passage this morning, think about these things. Let them dwell in your heart and imagine yourself uh, being that bowl owner, because bowl owner, because that was very similar to what Jesus' listeners would have heard here. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in the field, Jesus says. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his joy went, uh, in, in his joy went and sold all he had, and bought that field. And then without pause, Jesus goes, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, and he sold everything he had and bought it. Now these parables are short, but they are actually full of very deep meaning. Even more than meaning, they remind us of the value of the kingdom of God. They remind us of the value. Now, theologian C.H. Dodd reflects, among the parables explicitly referred to the kingdom of God, two of the shortest and simplest are those of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl, which form a pair. In each of them, we have a picture of a man suddenly confronted with a treasure of inestimable worth, which he forthwith, 
acquires at the cost of all he has. These parables remind us that there is a great value to the kingdom of God, but it's going to cost us everything to acquire it. It may even cost us our lives. Now, these two stories are fun to tell, and they've been told in fun ways through songs and plays. I remember as a kid at the church that I had first grown up in, we actually acted these out in play form. And so I got to dress like this uh, kind of homeless hobo uh, guy. And uh, I was digging in a field in front of the church and found some treasure. And then in kind of Beverly Hillbilly fashion, I yelled, yippee, right? And like kind of kicked my feet up. I think I can still do it, like, right, yeah, and clapped them together. And then I ran out. And, uh, and so we got to act these out. And these are fun stories to tell. But I don't think we often understand the way that they struck their original audience. We understand that, sure, these people found things that are wealthy, but I don't think we understand that this was a very familiar context to them. In each of these short stories, there's also a lot that we could speculate. Who's the merchant? Why is he looking for pearls? So on and so on. However, Jesus tells us these stories with the same intent and undercurrent. An intent and undercurrent that declared the kingdom of God was full of value and great wealth, and it would cost everything to get it. This is a story of a man selling everything he had to buy a field that he worked in. He was a farmhand. Now, that farmhand knew that there was riches in the field that he worked in. And the second one is the story of this professional yard sailor who found a prized pearl and gave up everything he had so he could get that one pearl, so he could afford this one piece that looked like nothing else he'd ever seen. Unlike the story that I opened up with, Both of these things were not only of great value, but of great sacrifice. Now, we might like the idea of somebody burying their treasure and us find it. We might even laugh at it. Like, who would do such a thing as that? Put everything, these kind of treasures in their backyard and bury them. And we kind of chuckle at that. Then again, I also chuckle that I had a grandparent who put their money in the freezer and another one that hid it inside a mason jar and put it inside a hole in the wall of wood paneling. I'm sure that all of us have family members that were kind of like this throughout the Depression that had unique ways of hiding their money. Now, in this time, Jesus' audience did not have banks. In fact, Jews were forbidden to earn interest. And so the way they handled money was completely different than you and I. This isn't the only time that Jesus actually talks about the riches of the kingdom as money that gets hidden in the ground. If you know the parable of the tenants, the unprofitable servant is the one who did not use his money for an increase, but rather hid it in the ground. And this was completely acceptable and also respected behavior at the time. It was actually not only in this way, Uh, kind of present in the culture of that's what you do with your money, but in other cultures as well. The early Vikings, when they would overtake somebody, they'd take their gold and their silver, and then they would bury it in the ground and never dig it up again. If you ever visited visited Indian Echo Caverns, kind of near Hershey, uh, when they opened that cave for the public, they found a treasure box in there, and they opened it up, and they found money in there, some going all the way back to Rome. And so for many cultures, including American, uh, it was very common for you to bury what you had so that nobody could touch it. In the time of Jesus, not only was it popular 
The rabbis encouraged it. In this time of war, in this time of uprisings and oppression, you would hide your money in your backyard, in your ground, so that you would not have it stolen by robbers or uprisings. And if you would have to run because kind of, you know, like your neighbors decide to fight Rome and then Rome comes in and levels everyone's house, you would run away. And then when you'd come back, you remember where you buried your money, you would dig it up, and then you would have some money to start life over with. It was very common, and it was encouraged. So in the same way, there were times that people didn't make it back to their house. And so there were these other people, farmhands, that would love to dig through other people's yards and kind of find these treasures. Man, if we can just find that treasure, we'll be made. It's like those people that every Saturday and Sunday you see at Turkey Hill, just kind of, sorry if you are this person, uh, you know, you are that, you know, you're spending $40 trying to get that winning lottery ticket uh, so that you don't have to work again the rest of your life. Like, this is the kind of people that Jesus is addressing, these people that knew there's got to be money in the field, you know, Joey didn't make it back after the uprising. I'm going to look for his riches. And so, you know, we never see anything in our culture like that, right? <laughs> right? It kind of gives us this image of the, these old men that kind of sit at the beach, and I don't know what they do for a living, but all they d- seem to do every morning is go around, beep, 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 right? <laughs> so this is that kind of idea, people looking for other people's riches. Now, this was so common that people were finding other people's wealth that they actually had to come up with finder, finder's keepers laws of the time. Now, William Barclay, a theologian, actually kind of translates for us this ancient Jewish law. And it says, what finds belong to the finder and what finds must be proclaimed? Which ones must you say like, hey, I found this thing and which ones do you just get to keep? These finds belong to the finder. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? If a man has scattered fruit, if you pick it up, it's yours. Or if they've scattered money or hid money and you find it, then these belong to the finder. Now, seemingly, you didn't have to find the rightful owner. You just got to keep it. Now, you and I might do that with a penny or a few dollars that we put on the ground. You know, oh, there's... There's a quarter. Put it in your pocket. Or, you know, there's $2. We might keep that. But if we're walking around an amusement park or wise markets and we find $100 on the ground, we usually try to take it to the storefront. We try to take it to the police and hope that it gets back to its rightful owner, right? But in this time, shrewdness was kind of politeness. And so you just kept it. It would be great to just keep $300,000 you found sitting on the ground. Keeping money you found uh, was more offensive to you, uh, like if, you know, it's more offensive to us than it was to Jesus' audience. However, what Jesus' audience would have found offensive about this story is actually something completely different. What they would have found troubling was Jesus highlights a man who is working for another man and finds that man's riches in his own yard doesn't tell the man about it. He reburies it and then convinces the man, like, you know, this soil you've been making me toil in for years, it's, it's not really good soil. I mean, I'll buy this land from you. And the man rightfully sells him the land, and all of a sudden, finders keepers, that treasure is mine. So what Jesus does is he takes this story of a man who's actually quite manipulative. He finds someone else's money. He rehides it. And then what he does is asks if he can buy the land so that he can have 
those riches. That is what Jesus compares the kingdom of God to. And that is what his audience would have found probably the most offensive. Author Thomas Keating says this, How can the kingdom of God be compared to a treasure that gives rise to such improper conduct? Evidently, this man re-hit it because he was trying to conceal it from its rightful owner. Now this part of the story would have certainly caught the attention of both the farmhands and the landowners. This is what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to get their attention to a fine, kind of offend their minds so he could reveal what's in their hearts. They had missed out and found ways around everything. And the farm owner in this story totally missed out what was buried in his own midst. And I don't know if this was Jesus' intent, but it works for me to also think that in many ways, the Jews had the DNA, the understanding, the promise, the hope of the kingdom of God. And it was in essence, buried in their backyard, but they overlooked it. They had missed out on it. They overlooked Jesus and his ministry, the announcement of his kingdom, because they had their own selfish wants that they could not surrender. The Gentiles and the marginalized then would inherit what was meant for everyone else. You don't want this field? I'll give this field to other people. And you know what? In this field, they're going to find treasure. They're going to find that thing you've missed out. However, to the main point of this parable, William Barclay points out this. The biggest mistake to uh, its intent or undercurrent that we can do is actually misread it. So in this parable, the two great points are the joy of the discovery and the willingness of the man to give up everything to make the treasure indubitably his own. Everything else is besides the point. So we can speculate about everything else, but... The most important thing to take away from this are these two kind of pieces of the puzzle. The man willingly surrendered everything he had and wanted in life to get something that now he wanted more, something of greater value. Now, what do we want in life? Think about that. What do we want in life, and what are we willing to often give up to get something better? Maybe I can ask, what do you want in life? Think about that for a moment. The Jewish audience of Jesus had things that they had wanted, they had desired, and they had expected, not only of the Messiah and the kingdom, but things they wanted and desired and expected for their neighborhood, for their country, for their purpose as a people. However, they seemed to not be able to move past what they wanted out of life to get something greater. Have you ever really wanted something but settled for something else and found yourself surprised. This was Jesus' point of these parables. These Jewish people were on hard times and they would have tried to hold on to any wealth that they had or could have found. But here are these two stories in which somebody has given up everything they've had to get something much better, kind of on a whim. That was what was standing out to Jesus' audience. What do you really want in life, and what are you willing to do to get something even better? Are you willing to give up everything? Now, in the first story, we see that the man finds joy. 
Now, we learn later in the Bible that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that happens inside us. It transforms us on the inside out, and it's because we experience transformation of Jesus and his kingdom. The word for joy there is actually car, the same word that is the root word for spirit and also uh, the word charismatic that we often use. We like people full of joy. We tend to stay closer to them than people that are not full of joy, right? Especially in tough situations. If we're kind of uh, in a bad place, we like to be around encouragers. Jesus says, finding the kingdom, being transformed by the rule and the reign of its presence, transforms us with its joy. Now, in this part of the pa- in the second part of the passage, we see Jesus tell a completely different story. It's a story of a merchant who is looking for pearls. Now, it's kind of this store owner, a merchant, and he's, he's walking around. He's going to yard sales and market shopping. He's looking to find pearls and probably resell them in his store or at his own market stand. And finally, he finds one that's just so much prettier than anything he's ever found. It is the golden egg of pearls. In this ancient world, pearls certainly had wealth. But they actually held a special place in the eyes of man. Actually, in our culture, we too have this same thing. Where do we put pearls? We put them on our necks, right? We like to kind of wear them and show them off. It means you are somebody important. If you can kind of wear your pearls, I'm going to church. I'm going to wear my pearls today, right? My wife's telling me to stop that. She just gave me that look, right? And so, uh, you know, in our culture, we too have special places for things like pearls because of their beauty and their rarity. But in Jesus' time, pearls were not only valued so much because of their wealth, but because of their beauty and their rarity. Pearls were very rare. They were very beautiful. And in the ancient world, you could actually only find them in two places, and it was the Red Sea and far off onto the coast of Britain. And so if you were blessed to find one or get one or inherit one, this was like something special. It's like the antique that you have in your house that you love to tell people about. Like, that was my great-great-grandfather's, and he used it to do this. So pearls had that same kind of significance. They would sit in your room, kind of like that bowl in the opening story, and when you would just look at it. You would reflect on it. You, you would feel that you were finally making it in life because I have that rare, beautiful thing right there. Now, there were merchants who made their living scouring other markets and coastlands trying to find pearls so they could sell them and make a living. In the Gospel of Matthew, author William Barclay writes, To the ancient peoples, a pearl was the loveliest of all possessions, a joy to complete and to admire. That means the kingdom is the loveliest thing in the world. Let us remember what the kingdom is. To be the kingdom is to accept and to do the will of God. That is to say and to do uh, the will of God is no grim, gray, agonizing thing. It is a lovely thing. I love that idea. The kingdom of God is a lovely thing. There are many fine things in this world, and there are many things in which man can find loveliness. He can find loveliness in knowledge and in the reaches of the human mind and in art and music and literature and all the triumphs of the human spirit. He can find loveliness in serving his fellow man, even if that service springs up from humanitarian rather than from purely Christian motives. And later reflects, he can find loveliness in human relationships. These things are all lovely, but they are still less loveliness. The supreme beauty 
lies in the acceptance of the will of God. Now, as you think about your life, what is it, what beauty captivates you? What loveliness in life captivates your mind? Is it that antique? Is it something you've done? Is it how you've achieved things in life? Pearls found significance in the home on display, like the bowl in the living room of my opening story, just like our antiques, our collectibles, our memories, our achievements. However, what is it in life that you find full of beauty, full of loveliness in your eyes? What is that one thing that distracts you from everything else? In this story, a merchant finds the holy grail of finds in the pearl world, a pearl of great value and beauty. Suddenly, the pearl he found was so much prettier, so much lovelier, so much more important than anything else he had ever had or wanted or was in pursuit of, and he was willing to give up everything to get that one pearl, and he believed that one pearl would sustain him more than anything else he owned in life to have. It was the greatest pursuit yet. This morning, these parables invite us to reflect on two things. What do we want? And what do we find lovely? More importantly, are we willing to surrender those things and everything else in life to find something that is actually more valuable and more lovely? This morning, there's a lot that we could take away from this passage. The kingdom of God is probably the most important aspect of Jesus' ministry. The rule and the reign of God manifesting itself in our everyday lives, inaugurated by the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, has changed history, and it continues to permeate our world. We can never talk about these parables enough. We can never read them enough. We can never wrestle with these things enough. But this morning, I think there are two questions for us to wrestle with, and those things are, what do we want in life, and what do we find lovely? And are those things really sustainable for us? Secondly, I think... uh, there are some notes that we can take away from this parable that teach us about the way the kingdom breaks in. And I encourage you to flip over to the back side of your bulletin. You'll find some places to fill in the blanks and kind of take notes as we move through these. First, as we see in this parable, we see that we all spend our lives in efforted pursuit of value and wealth. The first guy is a farmhand. He is working, but he's also looking to get out of that lifestyle at any chance he can. And the second guy is a merchant who is spending his effort in working. He's finding time to look for something that will help him become more wealthy in life. We all spend our lives in an efforted pursuit of value and wealth. And in following Jesus, through these parables, we find that his kingdom to be the wealthiest prize. It is the wealthiest thing we can. It is the thing that will sustain us in all of our pursuits. The kingdom is the wealthiest prize. However, his kingdom is only discoverable through hard effort. A farmhand was working in the field. He was digging. It involved kind of digging up this treasure, reburying it, using every effort and thing he had to rebuy the land. The merchant spends his day looking for the greatest thing. The kingdom in these stories are only discoverable through hard effort. And I don't mean effort in what can you do, but in active pursuit of your heart. The kingdom is present and radical response is needed. Both of these parables, there's a radical response People were willing to give up everything they wanted and everything they had. 
and to a poor audience, to an audience that uh, held on to whatever they could to survive in onshore times, giving up everything sounded scary. Now, we as Americans don't have that same reality. Most of us are probably wealthier than most of the world and maybe even most of our neighborhood. So for you, it might even be harder for you to imagine to give up everything you have, your retirement plans, your, your houses, your cabins, your, your collections. What does it mean that for you, if you were hearing this for the first time, to have to give up all of those things to get that one pearl that will sustain you for life? In that way, we abandoned, we abandoned what we, we possess and we pursue to do justice to God's kingdom. You know, one of the biggest problems that the world has with Christians is that, uh, as it used to be said, I think it was C.S. Lewis said, we acknowledge him with our lips, but we deny him with our lifestyle, right? Because the world sees us pursuing and wanting things that don't seem to be equal or Jesus' things or equal to Jesus' things, they look at us like we are hypocrites. You are no different than me. And in that way of living, we do a radical injustice to God's kingdom. We do a radical injustice. As a kid, I loved everything about baseball. I never tried to miss a Phillies game on TV or the radio. For years as a young boy, I fell asleep to uh, radio, you know, especially when they were on the West Coast. I'd put it on, you know, 10 o'clock at night, fall asleep, and I'd listen to Whitey and Harry call the games until I couldn't stay awake anymore. Any chance I had, I played baseball in the backyard. I practiced my Mike Schmidt batting practice stance, right? And I collected baseball cards. By the time I was in fourth grade, I had these kind of Tupperwares or under the bed bins that neatly were collected, uh, separated into 6,000 baseball cards that were kind of stacked and neatly uh, put into these plastic bins and tucked under my bed. And there was this great anticipation when you could get some money and buy a baseball card. You know, it was like 75 cents then. So you took 75 cents, you went to Kmart and you got a pack. And man, you just couldn't wait to just rip the top of that open and just pull them out. There was a certain smell because there was always gum inside them. And so as soon as you would pull up in these top baseball cards, you know, you could smell that gum that had been sitting in there for a few months. And you would, you would begin to chew down on that gum and begin to look for cards that caught your imagination. For me, I was always looking for Phillies cards. You know, I, I wanted to find the whole team if I could. And, and, you know, the other thing I wanted was rookie cards and rare cards, places where they had made errors on the card, because someday those are the ones that are going to be worth money. And back then you didn't have the Internet, so you actually didn't know how much your cards were worth, so you would go back to Wise, and you'd go to the magazine shelf, and they would have these uh, Beckett's price guides, and you would buy that, and, you know, it was like $3, and you'd bring it home, and you'd look up your baseball card, right? That Juan Samuel All-Star card, how much is that? Oh, it's worth 75 cents. I already paid for the whole pack, like, you know, and so you would get this kind of expectation and hope that you would find something worth $5, so you could go out and buy more baseball cards, Truthfully, I still like this anticipation of opening baseball cards. 
Winter is hard for me. And so as spring rolls around and spring training begins to kick off, what I tend to do is go to the store and buy some baseball cards, some new ones and some old ones. And with my three daughters, I share this love for them to feed our spring fever of opening up baseball cards. And they have come to love stacking them in the same way. Daddy, I got a rookie. Or like, oh, man, I didn't get Phillies. And you see this kind of disappointment in their minds, you know. Or but my sister got a Phillies and hers, but I didn't. And so we begin to put them in stacks. And, and they get really excited. Like, I mean, Annalie in this last time we opened up, she said, Daddy, Daddy, this one has to be worth a lot, right? And, you know, it was just like a regular card. But, yeah, that's great. I'm sure it's worth what we paid for the bag. You know, they love dividing rookies out from the others. And as we do this, we experience joy. We experience joy together. And as I think about the anticipation of opening baseball cards or even the surprises of finding a bowl at a yard sale that's worth $2.2 million, I realize that kind of desire and anticipation is exactly what Jesus was desiring of us within regards to the kingdom of God. He desires us to anticipate the manifesting rule and reign of God in our everyday life. And we'll be surprised when we see his heart and his compassion and his power manifest itself in our lives. However, it's going to take a radical response. It's more than just me giving all 250 of my allowance to buy five packs of baseball cards, right? Like it was giving everything that you had. We don't get to just sit back and wait for the rule and reign of God to show up. It takes our efforts. It takes our willingness. It takes our hearts being right. Baseball cards don't open themselves. We need jobs to pay for them. We don't get to uh, just watch them open themselves. We need to open them. We need to go through them. Antiques at yard sales don't just fall into our laps. We need to kind of discern and, and spend money to get them. Right? God desires us to be actively in pursuit of him. He desires us to pursue him with great anticipation and to surrender ourselves in a way that allows the power and the rule of his reign to manifest. He desires to surprise us with its value. These parables show us that God's kingdom did not force itself on the world, and it's surely not going to force itself on you or me either. It has to be pursued and surrendered to. However, it doesn't just take this kind of pursuit to find And it's not only just a surprise when we find it, but it also is a costly investment. I encourage you just to close your eyes for a minute. And as I read this quote from William Barclay, let it reflect on you. To accept it, the kingdom of God, may be to give up certain aims and certain habits and ways of life which are very difficult to lay down. To accept the discipline and self-denial which are by means no means easy. In a word, to take up our cross and follow after Jesus. But there is no other way to a peace of mind and heart in this life and to glory in the life to come. It is indeed worth giving up everything to accept and do the will of God. Like the opening story I shared, the DNA of the kingdom was in the living room, in the field for the Jewish people their whole life. But they missed out on the wealth that they could have. I don't want to miss out on that wealth. I don't want you to miss out on that wealth. I don't want my friends in the neighborhood to miss out on that wealth. I want them to see the rule and the reign of God's transformation, uh, uh, the rule and reign of God's uh, presence manifesting in their everyday lives and transforming them from the inside out. 
We should live in a way that desires our neighbors don't miss out. Live radical. Live in a way that shows them that this really is the richest and the loveliest thing that we have. This is our thing of most beauty. Thomas Keating puts it like this. The kingdom is among us and within us. It is a treasure that involves our participation in the divine life to which no other conceivable good can compare. And in all practical purposes, most people are just not interested. So what do you want? What do you find lovely? Deep down, it's easy for us to say, Jesus, and we're sure that the thing we want more than anything else is the kingdom. But folks, if you are really unsure, I encourage you to ask your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, what is it that you think my life values? What is it that you think my life finds wealthy or beautiful? Because often what their answer is is going to be much closer to the truth than what you think of it yourself. Are you willing to move past those things you want, those things that find joy, that bring you value, and bring you beauty to find something of more sustaining value and beauty? It is that question we all need to ask ourselves. It's a question I need to ask myself on a daily basis. Am I living in a way that still says the kingdom of God, this thing that Jesus said was the most forthright kind of beauty and central peace, is that still what I want? Is that still what I'm in pursuit of? C.H. Dodd begs us to wrestle with the impact of these parables. Jesus saw in his own ministry the coming of the kingdom of God. It is within your power to possess it in the here and now. It is like the treasure finder and the pearl merchant. You will throw caution to the winds. Follow me. I think that's what Jesus has for us as an invitation as we wrap up this morning. It's my kingdom. It's my power and inbreaking. Something that you can possess right now. It's becoming the lo- most lovely, most valued thing in your life. Is it becoming is becoming the most valuable thing. Jesus is desiring it for us. Because when we live this stuff out, it will change people. It'll speak to our neighbors in powerful ways to give them what they need in life as well. You know, when we live in this way, when people see it in us, it's the chances that we are probably the times that we also have the most kind of evangelical kind of conversations with people. Like, I can think in times that I'm like, man, I can do this really well, and I'm doing this really well. It's the times where our neighbors want to talk to us the most about faith because it's almost kind of glowing on us. It's the times that you're in a restaurant that somebody says, hey, can you just pray for me? You know, if that really is the foremost thing on our mind, we're willing to stop everything right there and just be with them. Even if they're atheists, they've come to us for prayer because they see that that is the most important thing. Is it what you desire this morning? This morning as we begin to close and move into a time of communion, I invite you to see communion as this time to recommit yourself to God, to his kingdom, to tell him you find his way, his kingdom, more beautiful than anything else. That you want to be committed to it more than you value anything else. And it's also this radical pledge to his kingdom and to each other to keep each other accountable to this journey of following Jesus. A journey where our community becomes transformed as a kingdom foretaste of what's yet to come. Where his kingdom is, we will value that more than tradition. Where the beauty of his reconciliation is, we will find that more important than anything else we want. I'm convinced when revival happens, those times when the Holy Spirit breaks out, 
and, and just kind of takes over the place. And there's some great stories even in our own Anabaptist history of that. Look up Roxbury Camp and its, and its formation. Like, I'm convinced that when the Holy Spirit moves in power, when justice pours out in the streets, it's not because the church has come to this place of thinking right about the kingdom of God. It's because these kingdom communities have become full of people who see the kingdom as the most valuable and beautiful thing there. It's easy for us to pray, Lord, I want revival. But if we're living in a way that's contradictory to that, keep praying, it ain't going to come. We need communities that are dedicated and shaped and transformed by this desire to value and find the kingdom beauty 